Hello and welcome, friends, family, and of course, enemies alike, to episode 167 of Reading Cadence. I am your host, the displaced Wisconsinite, Phil Olson. Throughout these odd-numbered episodes, we are reading through the British spy novel entitled The 39 Steps by John Buchan. This is a novel about a man named Richard Hanning, lived in Zambia for a time, was originally born in Scotland, but now an expatriate of London, England. So, perfect fodder for what happens next. He's a bored man, has a lot of money, so doesn't really need to work at all, but is just kind of existing, looking for adventure. And in walks his ticket out of his dull existence, a man by the name of Franklin P. Scudder, a Kentuckian, a very boisterous man, and a very eccentric man indeed, because one of his first things that he tells Richard is that he's dead. Richard's like, what the heck? And so he helps draw out this man's tale, and Franklin begins to explain to him that there's a much larger European stage um, espionage ring taking place uh, that is seeking to take down and assassinate a Greek premier, a very charismatic man in the international stage named Karolides, while Karolides is speaking in London. Why this man comes to Richard Hannay to tell him about this, one can only surmise. But he wants at least one other person to know his tale, in just in case Franklin bites the dust before he has an opportunity to prevent this assassination attempt. And so we enter the story with Richard Hannay continuing to entertain this guest and uh, unearth this tale in more depth. I just want to, before we begin, to talk about the importance of what you call the first chapter of any book that you write, for it sets the stage for all the events that come after it. Let me give you an example. I was recently listening to J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, the very first book in this entire series. And do you want to know what the, the, the name of the first chapter is called? It is called The Boy Who Lived has a very, it generates a, a very optimistic and upbeat light and airy tone about it. Um, just carries on throughout the rest of the book. You're really left with, with some inspiration as you're reading. Do you want to know what the chapter of the 39 steps is? The very first chapter in this series. The man who died. And that man, of course, is Franklin P. Scudder, a man who is explaining how he is dead and uh, really sets a very ominous, eerie, and dark tone as we engage the British spy novel The 39 Steps by John Buchan. Chapter 1. The Man Who Died. Part 2. I was getting to like the little chap. His jaw had shut like a rat trap, and there was the fire of a battle in his gimlety eyes. If he was spinning me a yarn, he could act up to it. 
Where did you find out this story? I asked. I got the first hint in an inn on the Achenese in Tyrol. That set me inquiring, and I collected my other clues in a fur shop in the Galician quarter of Badar, in a stranger's club in Vienna, and in a little bookshop off the Rachtenstrasse in Leipzig. I completed my evidence ten days ago in Paris. I can't tell you the details now, for it's something of a history. When I was quite sure in my own mind, I judged it my business to disappear, and I reached this city by a mighty queer circuit. I left Paris a dandified young French-American, and I sailed from Amberg, a Jew diamond merchant. In Norway, I was an English student of Ibsen, collecting materials for lectures. But when I left Bergen, I was a cinema man with special ski films, and I came here from Leith with a lot of pulpwood propositions in my pocket to put before the London newspapers. Till yesterday, I thought I had muddied my trail some, and was feeling pretty happy. Then, the recollection seemed to upset him, and he gulped down some more whiskey. Then, I saw a man standing in the street outside this block. I used to stay close in my room all day, and only slip out after dark for an hour or two. I watched him for a bit from my window, and I thought I recognized him. He came in and spoke to the porter. When I came back from my walk last night, I found a card in my litter box. It bore the name of the man I want least to meet on God's earth. I think that the look in my companion's eyes, the sheer naked scare on his face, completed my conviction of his honesty. My own voice sharpened a bit as I asked him what he did next. I realized that I was bottled as sure as a pickled herring, and that there was only one way out. I had to die. If my pursuers knew I was dead, they would go to sleep again. How did you manage it? I told the man that valets me that I was feeling pretty bad, and I got myself up to look like death. That wasn't difficult for I'm no slouch at disguises. Then, I got a corpse. You can always get a body in London if you know where to go for it. <laughs> I fetched it back in a trunk on the top of a four-wheeler, and I had to be assisted upstairs to my room. You see, I had to pile up some evidence for the inquest. I went to bed, and got my man to mix me a sleeping draft, and then told him to clear out. He wanted to fetch a doctor, but I swore some, and said I couldn't abide leeches. When I was left alone, I started in to fake up that corpse. He was my size, and I judged I'd perished from too much alcohol, so I put some spirits handy about the place. The jaw was the weak point in the likeness, so I blew it away with a revolver. I dare say there will be somebody tomorrow to swear to have having heard a shot. But there are no neighbors on my floor, and I guessed I could risk it. So I left the body in a bed, dressed up in pajamas, with a revolver lying on the bedclothes and a considerable mess around. Then I got into a suit of clothes I had kept waiting for emergencies. I didn't dare to shave for fear of leaving tracks, and besides, it wasn't any kind of use me trying to get into the streets. I had had you in my mind all day, and there seemed nothing to do but to make an appeal to you. I watched from my window till I saw you come home and then slipped down the stair to meet you. 
There, sir. I guess you know uh, about as much as me of this business. <laughs> he sat, blinking like an owl, fluttering with nerves and yet desperately determined. By this time, I was pretty well convinced that he was going straight with me. It was the wildest sort of narrative, but I had heard in my time many steep tales which had turned out to be true, and I had made a practice of judging the man rather than the story. If he had wanted to get a location in my flat, and then cut my throat, he would have pitched a milder yarn. Hand me your key, I said, and I'll take a look at the corpse. Excuse my caution, but I am bound to verify a bit if I can. He shook his head mournfully. I'd reckoned you'd ask for that, but I haven't got it. It's on my chain on the dressing table. I had to leave it behind for... I couldn't leave any clues to breed suspicions. The gentry who are after me are pretty bright-eyed citizens. You'll have to take me on trust for the night, and tomorrow you'll get proof of the corpse business right enough. I thought for an instant or two. Right, I'll trust you for the night. I'll lock you into this room and keep the key. Just one word, Mr. Scutter. I believe you're straight. But if so be you are not, I should warn you that I'm a handy man with a gun. Sure, he said, jumping up with some briskness. I haven't the privilege of your name, sir, but let me tell you that you're a white man. I'll thank you to lend me a razor. I took him into my bedroom and turned him loose. In half an hour's time, a figure came out that I scarcely recognized. Only his gimlety, hungry eyes were the same. He was shaved clean, his hair was parted in the middle, and he had cut his eyebrows. Further, he had carried himself as if he had been drilled, and was the very model, even to the brown complexion, of some British officer who had a long spell in India. He had a monocle, too, which he stuck in his eye, and every trace of the American had gone out of his speech. My hat! Mr. Scudder! I, I stammered. Not Mr. Scudder, he corrected. Captain Theophilus Digby, of the 40th Gurkhas, presently home on leave. I'll thank you to remember that, sir. I made him up a bed in my smoking room and sought my own couch, more cheerful than I had been for the past month. Things did happen occasionally, even in this god-forgotten metropolis. I woke next morning to hear my man Paddock making the deuce of a row at the smoking room door. Paddock was a fellow I had done a good turn to out on the Selequi, and I had inspanned him as my servant as soon as I got to England. He had about as much gift of the gab as a hippopotamus, and was not a great hand at valeting, but I knew I could count on his loyalty. Stop that row, Paddock, I said. There's a friend of mine, Captain... Captain. I couldn't remember the name. Dossing down in there. Get breakfast or two, and then come and speak to me. I told Paddock a fine story about how my friend was a great swell, with his nerves pretty bad from overwork, who wanted absolute rest and stillness. Nobody had got to know he was here, or he would be besieged by communications from the India office, and the Prime Minister and his cure would be ruined. I'm bound to say, Scudder played up splendidly when he came to breakfast. He fixed Paddock with his eyeglass, just like a British officer, asked him about the Boer War, 
and slung out at me a lot of stuff about imaginary pals. Paddock couldn't learn to call me sir, but he served Scudder as if his life depended on it. I left him with the newspaper and a box of cigars, and went down to the city till luncheon. When I got back, the liftman had an important face. Nasty business air this morning, sir. Gentin number 15, Benin, shot himself. They just took him to the mortuary. The police are up there now. I ascended to number 15, and found a couple of bobbies and an inspector, busy making an examination. I asked a few idiotic questions, and they soon kicked me out. Then I found the man that had validated Scudder, and pumped him. But I could see he suspected nothing. He was a whining fellow with a churchyard face, and half a crown went far to console him. I attended the inquest next day. A partner of some publishing firm gave evidence that the deceased had brought him woodpulp propositions, and had been, he believed, an agent of an American business. The jury found it a case of suicide, while of unsound mind, and the few effects were handed over to the American consul to deal with. I gave Scudder a full account of the affair, and it interested him greatly. He said he wished he could have attended the inquest, for he reckoned it would be about as spicy as to read one's own obituary notice. The first two days he stayed with me in that back room, he was very peaceful. He read and smoked a bit, and made a heap of jottings in a notebook, and every night we had a game of chess at which he beat me hollow. I think he was nursing his nerves back to health, for he had a pretty trying time. But on the third day, I could see he was beginning to get restless. He fixed up a list of the days till June 15th, and ticked each off with a red pencil, making remarks in shorthand against them. I would find him sunk in a brown steady, with his sharp eyes abstracted, and after those spells of meditation, he was apt to be very despondent. Then, I could see that he began to get edgy again. He listened for little noises, and was always asking me if Paddock could be trusted. Once or twice, he got very peevish and apologized for it. I didn't blame him. I made every allowance, for he had taken on a fairly stiff job. It was not the safety of his own skin that troubled him, but the success of the scheme he had planned. That little man was clean grit all through, without a soft spot in him. One night, he was very solemn. Say, Hannay, he said, I judge I should let you a bit deeper into this business. I should hate to go out without leaving somebody else to put up a fight. And he began to tell me in detail what I had only heard from him vaguely. I did not give him very close attention. The fact is, I was more interested in his own adventures than in his high politics. I reckoned that Carolides and his affairs were not my business, leaving all that to him. So a lot, he said, slipped clean out of my memory. I remember that he was very clear that the danger to Carolides would not begin till he had got to London, and would come from the very highest quarters, where there would be no thought of suspicion. He mentioned the name of a woman, Julia Chechenyi, as having something to do with the danger. She would be the decoy, I gathered, to get Carolides out of the care of his guards. He talked, too, about a black stone, and a man that lisped in his speech, and he described very particularly 
somebody he had never referred to without a shudder. An old man with a young voice who could hood his eyes like a hawk. He spoke a good deal about death, too. He was mortally anxious about winning through with his job, but he didn't care a rush for his life. I reckon it's like going to sleep when you're pretty well tired out and waking to find a summer day with the scent of hay coming out in at the window. I used to thank God for such mornings way back in the bluegrass country, and I guess I'll thank him when I wake up on the other side of Jordan. Next day, he was much more cheerful and read the life of Stonewall Jackson much of the time. I went out to dinner with a mining engineer that I got to see on business and came back about half past ten in time for our game of chess before turning in. I had a cigar in my mouth, I remember, as I pushed open the smoking room door. The lights were not lit, which struck me as odd. I wondered if Scudder had turned in already. I snapped the switch, but there was nobody there. Then I saw something in the far corner, which made me drop my cigar and fall into a cold sweat. My guest was lying sprawled on his back. There was a long knife through his heart, which skewered him to the floor. End of chapter one. The Man Who Died, Part 2. So if you recall, a couple of weeks ago when we read the first half of this chapter, Hannay is questioning the claim of Scudder, that Scudder is dead. And Scudder simply replies with a Latin phrase, Mores genua vitae, death is the gateway to life. He was kind of using it in a tongue-in-cheek way to say, Hey, faked my own death, so now I have my life back. Little did he realize that Scudder was uttering a self-fulfilling prophecy, and did indeed die shortly thereafter meeting Hane. Now, as he was describing his initial fake death and all of the components that were taken to pull it off of sorts. He makes a very troubling statement. I want to reread this to you. He's going off about all the things that he did, and then he said, Then I got a corpse. You can always get a body in London if you know where to go for it. I, I, I honestly don't know what he meant by that, but it was a little disturbing when I read it. Uh, I think it was meant for some comedic relief, but I am genuinely concerned about London during this this era of time for a couple of reasons. One, did Scudder just, like, raid a coroner's office? Why wasn't it locked? Were the locks easy to pick? Um, did he just know of streets in London where you could just find dead bodies? Did he kill someone? And why, on God's green earth, does everybody look like Franklin P. Scudder? I mean, golly, the guy, all the guy had a complaint about of the body that he stole or whatever, <laughs> acquired, if you will, uh, was that the jawline was off. That was kind of harsh to the dead body. I, I, I felt that. Um, so he blew the guy's face off. And then he just continues, you know, 
dressing up the body to make it look like the guy OD'd on alcohol because he's like, this guy's body type was the body type of an alcoholic. And it's just like, ouch, the guy's dead. Be nice to him. Show some respect, especially for somebody you used for your own personal gain. I mean, golly. Also, very concerned about the forensic capabilities of Scotland Yard or whoever is taking care of dead bodies in London at this point in time. Because DNA? Question mark? Wouldn't that reveal something about the corpse? You know, all the guy had to do was put the guy in his own clothes and people were convinced that it was Franklin P. Scudder who died. Like, poor dude. Alcoholic. Probably because he had a really rough life growing up. And was hard on his luck. And then died suddenly. And then here you've got Scudder. Who's insulting his proclivities and jawline. And, you know... Nobody goes to identify the body and is like, Actually, that kind of looks like my pal. Everybody's like, nope, this is, this is Scudder. We got him. And Scudder is able to successfully at this point assume a quiet life in Hannay's apartment. You know, he just passes the time taking notes, developing a scheme to prevent the assassination of Karolides, and is overall doing a pretty good job. And then one day, he's inspired. And this is also a troubling point and a very valuable lesson to us all is the importance of being a good listener because Hannay fully confesses in his memoir. I don't know if this is like live or if he's recalling back to this time in his life. But he says, yeah, then, then Scudder starts telling me things and I'm not really into high politics. I don't really enjoy that scene. And so just kind of got some of the TLDR highlights and assumed that I knew everything. Well, sir, I have a feeling that this is going to come back and haunt you. Um, so maybe this is a, a good point uh, in the the podcast episode to tell you to be involved in the political scene and spectrum that you exist in. Um, Do and go about your civic duty of educating yourself and uh, go out and vote. Heck, why not? Let's get on the bandwagon. But thank you all so much for listening to another episode of Reading Cadence. Who knew the valuable life lessons that we could learn from a chapter entitled The Man Who Died. Since I made a big thing about chapter titles, I'll just for this one time uh, reveal the second chapter's title, which is The Milkman Sets Out on His Travels. You'll find out what that means in two weeks' time. But until then, next week we are continuing to read through The Pilgrim's Progress. As they say in showbiz, signing off, that's all he wrote for now.